Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about implicit bias and skill building, growth and change. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you want to know more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. This episode was recorded on June 16th during a Facebook Live series. Without further ado, let's kick it over to the episode. I had a request last week for some skill building ideas around implicit bias. Once you know what you know about taking the um, implicit assessment test at the Harvard Implicit Bias website, then, okay, what do you do with that information? So I'm going to refer you back to the original implicit bias, the the original video that I did on implicit bias, which was 525.20, where I shared, hi, Cynthia, where I shared my initial results when I took the first implicit bias test on the Harvard website, which I have now learned so much more after doing that. And it's really opened up my mind about how we can skill build around our own personal implicit biases, as well as begin to really train and raise awareness in organizations, whether it's uh, police departments, school systems, classrooms, if we want to go a little bit smaller, in really all facets of our community because implicit bias exists. That's what the word implicit means is that it's sort of hidden from us, but then we can raise our awareness to it. So the Harvard implicit bias test has been around for a couple decades. It's a start, but it's a tool and it's not the final answer to anything. So it's not like, oh, you did an IQ test and this is your IQ. However, I don't really believe IQ tests are um, all that accurate either. And I do believe that they change over time. But in theory, the idea is your IQ is your IQ is your IQ. And it doesn't change over time, no matter how many times you take an IQ test. Well, implicit bias is not that way, and let me explain why. If you recall on, if you were here on 525.20, I shared my initial results on the implicit bias test. So, and what it revealed was that I had a moderate preference for white people. And I was sort of like shocked and a little bit annoyed And I just wasn't at all satisfied with those results. So I felt a little defensive at the test and humbled like, oh my gosh, I really thought I knew myself. And two, this has been in my field and in my wheelhouse for decades as well. 
And so I thought, oh my gosh, if I have this strong of a preference for white people, then what does it mean for people who this is brand new information for? So, but mostly I was confused. So, but I took the test very quickly. I'm also, if you don't, if you recall, I'm profoundly dyslexic. So I struggle a whole lot with left and right. I'm one of those people who have to like hold their hand up and I broke my left pinky when I was in fourth grade. So that pinky is my reference for left all the time. So I do confuse my left and right often. And I always skim the rules of anything, which can also be a problem, especially when putting things together, like assembling things or just really any of the rules. Like I missed the rule that parents weren't supposed to stay with their children in kindergarten for two weeks and guess which mom stayed the entire day of Eli's first day of kindergarten and didn't know the rule. So, okay, so the rules are a little bit, you know, I could be wonky. If I'm not following the rules, it's fine if you know me to grab me and say, hey, there's a rule about that. So, <clears throat> but this is part of being dyslexic. It also makes us a lot of fun because, you know, we, we, are, we are different and a little quirky. We look at the world through a multicolored lens. So I decided after I had this, um, after I did my test, like I just wasn't, I just couldn't even almost sleep about it. So I decided to recheck my results. Two of my kids, like I had talked about this, you know, so lots of people went out and did the implicit bias test. So two of my adult children did the implicit bias test totally separately, didn't tell me they were doing it, but they both came back with slight preferences for blacks. And so then, so how could like my children be three entire steps off of my score and I pretty much, and I raised them, you know, I was, now I'm really confused. So, but Eli, I remember my youngest son had taken the implicit bias test before in his life, way back when he was about 13, because his best friend was African-American and both he and his friend scored no preference. So, um, so I knew, like I knew that from way back then. I can't remember what mine was. So I took it again. And this time I read the instructions thoroughly and I slowed down a little bit. And this time I too showed a slight preference for blacks. So I felt way better, of course, but at the same time, I couldn't really deny my last results, which showed, you know, a moderate preference for white. white. So um, why did I have this first score? And so I needed to really validate my own results. I didn't think it was fair. We talked about confirmation bias where you only take in the information that serves your purpose and beliefs. So of course my confirmation bias wanted to just pretend like the first test never happened and accept the new test. But I, as a scientist and a researcher and an educator, I just knew like, okay, that's not fair. I need to know more, keep digging. So which one of these, which one of these uh, tests is really the true story? So I took it again later the next day to see if I had a moderate preference for whites or a slight preference for blacks. And then this time I got a moderate preference for blacks. And now I'm just like, you know, of course, 
I'm completely confused because I've taken the test three times in a row. That's it. I haven't looked at it any other time. And I, and I have these three different scores. So of course my natural tendency, like I said, with confirmation bias is, whoa, okay, I'm going to keep that score. But I couldn't, you know, like now I'm annoyed at the test because now I feel like, okay, this isn't accurate information. We're not getting all the information. This is not a one and done tool. I had to have answers to explain the, the three scores because I've told people for years, like this is implicit bias and it's pretty steady and stays the same. And that's, that is not my experience, obviously. So what are we going to do about this? So it's so important to know what your implicit bias responses are because implicit bias predicts behavior. And so having real personal insight is important to know yourself in order to manage your behaviors towards others, particularly others who are different. So I decided to just write to Harvard. Like, I need to know, I have these responses. I sent them pictures of my, my you know, results sheet. And I said, what the heck's going on? I need, I need to be able to explain this. And here's what they said, quote, the IAT, the Implicit Assessment Test, is a well-validated measure, but not perfectly accurate. Like blood pressure, and in my brain, I say like brain states, you can have varying results based on your current state. So like how tired you are or what you're thinking about, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And then there's also a practice effect, which I really thought that there wasn't a practice effect to this test. So this was super interesting for me and it made me think even more deeply about using the tool as a training device for organizations. Cause you know, I'm always thinking about systems change and how can we use powerful information to transform systems to better and build our more resilient communities. So <clears throat> then results are based on your current state. Hello, I'm always dyslexic. So if I'm tired and not reading the, the signs, then I slow down, I read all the rules. I've been watching the news about Breonna Taylor and uh, George Floyd and the protests and all of this stuff. So clearly my mind is, um, you know, primed for <clears throat> taking on that emotional state. So, okay, we find, let's, so that sort of explained it for me. And then by the time I took it a third time, well, okay, I'm moving up the battle and now, you know, black people can do no wrong because <laughs> I've practiced and I, um, and I've also been really feeling a lot of angst and sadness and responsibility for the unfair treatment of the African-American community. So I decided to really think about what are the skills that we can use as we understand more in depth about implicit bias and explicit bias. There is research that shows that if people, it's really interesting that there's this very, and I'm only talking about black and white, you know, racial differences, even though we live in a very diverse country, but I want to make these two distinctions. African-Americans, 
really prefer if they're going to be treated unequally or unfairly, they would. Pr- this is a this is done in research. I'm not making this up. And so if you're black and you don't agree with this, then I please tell me personally, because I would like to know how you feel about this. Um that black people prefer explicit bias, which means you say negative things and you do negative things very openly rather than experience implicit bias where you treat them differently, but you say the opposite. You know, like, oh, I'm not racist. And then you ask them for your their ID at the grocery counter when they write a check, but then you don't ask the white person behind them for their ID. That would be implicit You know, that's an implicit action rather say, you know, you're black. I need to see your ID because, you know, I'm worried that you might be writing me a bad check. So it's still like it's a terrible thing, but it's more honest. And then it allows people to respond in a more honest way, too. Like they don't have to have the feeling they can just know. And so... So I think that that's really interesting research. Now, on the flip side, white people are highly offended and do not want people to say negative things about white people. Like if you call a white person a white supremacist, they're totally offended. But if you think it and you treat them like a white supremacist, but you don't say the words, that's what they prefer. So there is a weird preferential difference and it's in its cultural. It's not personal. This is not a human situation. This is socialization that white people are socialized to be highly offended by explicit comments where African-Americans are used to it because of, you know, our history of explicit racism towards this particular group for 400 years. So very interesting that that's a socialization process. It's not a black white process. Just want to make that really clear. Let's talk about skill building. The first step is to take the IAT, the implicit assessment test. And I suggest that people take this not only with race related to black and white, but with men and women, gay and straight, trans and trans and not trans um there's a there's there's probably 25 different categories and i suggest that you use this as a tool to check yourself in all sorts of ways that you could potentially be biased against other groups marginalized groups or just groups that are different and take it at least three times Now, this is my lesson learned is if you take it three different times, especially in three different states of mind, that's going to that's going to yield information for you personally. Is it a scientific, you know, result? Sure, it is. But at the same time, you're going to use it for personal growth and development. So you want to know what your different in what types of situations do you respond to different types of groups of people who are marginalized? All right, the second skill that you can do, and it's really an activity, is to set up an affinity group. An affinity group is a group of people who are like you. We don't want a diversity group. We want an affinity group. I need to know who my white friends are who can safely talk to me and with me and I can with them about racism 
and be open and honest about our white experience and really dig deep with a commitment to becoming more aware and battling racist behavior and racist thoughts and ideas and racist socialization. So that's what an affinity group is. It doesn't put the responsibility on the African-American community or your black friends. It takes the responsibility and puts it right where it belongs. And that's with a group of people who are quote unquote like you. Commit to a schedule for that group. Don't say, oh yeah, we'll just meet occasionally and have you know coffee and talk about racism. No, commit to it. <clears throat> And make it an ongoing thing once a week, once every two weeks. It's it's important because what you'll pull for, people learn by being able to communicate safely with each other. And so when you're able to pull that information from each other without the fear of saying something wrong or being judged or criticized for it, just questioned about it, it's, it's a better way to grow and change. All right, so the third skill is the Harvard people wrote back and said there is a practice effect. And so practice this test. Practice the AIT on race, black and white, because what we know is that implicit bias drives behavior. And if you can practice retrain your brain to be less biased towards a particular group, it's going to simultaneously train your behavior to be more aware and check yourself in terms of that unaware biases that we have and now that are being raised to our consciousness. Making sense, I hope. So the other thing to do is read books about racism. I'll tell you, you know, you've probably heard me say it before. 60 Minutes is like my all-time favorite show. If I don't watch anything at all on TV in an entire week, the only thing I really want to watch is 60 Minutes on Sunday night at 7. And I have probably since I was five with my dad and my mom and, you know, my family. It's just a thing. So this week, this Sunday on on 60 Minutes, I learned all about the Greenwood District. Not all about it. I mean, I learned for the first time about the Greenwood District in Oklahoma called the Black Wall Street that was literally burned to the ground by a white mob. And how there are just mass graves of African Americans in that city, the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's just been a complete buried story because it doesn't show up in our history books. That's for sure. Now, take it even a step further. My mother was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So now she didn't grow up there because she came to California during the Dust Bowl, you know, and When the Greenwood District was burned, it was 1921, and my mom wasn't born until 1939. However, my grandparents, her parents, were born, and they were well in their 30s, 30 to 40 years old by then. So now, of course, neither of them are living, but I'm so, so curious of what their stories would be about this happening in 
a neighborhood of their city. Because I can't imagine like right now, a group, an angry mob going down and burning the Tower District or Southwest Fresno or Fig Garden and saying, you know, and not like having that story be repeated. But there was a young African-American man who was who grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who didn't believe the story because he had never heard it. He, he didn't. So he was one of the people that they were interviewing. So I thought, wow, again, it is so important that we are rewriting or at least ditching the history books that we have today and replacing them with a much more broad, accurate picture of history of all people, our Native Americans, African American, the slave, how slavery started in the U.S. and what its contribution was to the economy, rather than just this white, white version of history, the internment camps of the Japanese during World War II. I mean, that we have the largest internment camp in my city, I think in California, right here in Fresno. So, um, you know, a lot of things happen and history repeats itself if we don't learn our history. So it's very, very important. So that in and of itself, I've decided, like, I want to know more about that. That's partly my roots because my family was born there. But it's also something that I really care about, the injustice of an entire community being burned to the ground and then just buried as if they never existed. That's just that just makes me sick. So as, as people who identify as white culture or dominant culture, reading books like White Rage and White Fragility with your affinity group is, are an important place to start because there is this high, overly sensitive response to people saying, you're racist because you're white, but you think, no, I'm not racist because I'm white. And so how do we get past that? Because we're trying to come together, not pull people apart. And in that process, we have to acknowledge our anger and our fragility at being blamed for something that we don't recognize as being part of or doing. And I think that the truth is that that. African-Americans aren't blaming individuals. This is a societal, cultural thing, experience, and it was set up by dominant culture. And really, let's be honest, white men. Does that mean we hate all white men? No, of course not. I'm the mother of two white men and love lots and lots of white men. It's not their fault, but we have to address how the system was set up and then you know, redistribute and reorganize that system to make it more fair. <clears throat> and this is true for other groups besides black and white. How about men and women? You know, look at the board of directors at any nonprofit that you're part of or that you know of. Just look at it. Walk in the bank and look at all the people on the wall. So walk down a university hallway that has professors on the walls. So we're getting better sometimes, but the truth is we're, we still have a lot of work to do. But guess what? 
We're here, delusional optimists. We are starting step one step at a time. We're gonna do this. So the fifth skill that you can practice and 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 play around with is ask questions and get answers from real people. Learn from your black friends and families and community and share about your white families. Invite people to your house, go to their house, integrate yourself in an uncomfortable situation because you're the one who's different in order to learn something about yourself and how that might feel to somebody who comes into your world where you're part of the dominant culture. This is an experience that I had in Kenya when I was in Africa in last year. And as a white person in a predominantly black country, and I was in Nairobi and then I was in Haruma, but I was a novelty and a novelty that was appreciated, not a novelty that was rejected or discriminated against. So I came home and I believe that I told one of my um, African-American friends like, it made me so uncomfortable because I come from a place where the exact opposite is true, where African-Americans are treated differently and not in a good way in my country. So I had a, a big revelation and, and it just felt very, very uncomfortable about being treated so well because of my skin color. Like, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is, this is wrong. So anyway, so having those kinds of experiences and sharing those kinds of experiences. And then six, this is just a personal plug and we are at the end of our show today. And that is hire somebody who will teach implicit bias training, not as a one and done, but as a series of modules that include training and some technical assistance on site for your organization who can address not only the bias, but all the supports that are needed for real change and dialogue to create equal justice and treatment <clears throat> within your organization, whatever that is, whether it's a classroom, whether it's a police department, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a mental health organization, hire somebody like me, www.drbconnections.com. You need somebody who doesn't do diversity training, who does implicit bias training, who can help people to recognize, particularly people who are working within a system that was built on white dominant culture to sort of reel things back a little bit and recognize that, oh yeah, we do have some, some work to do, but it doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be hard. It just has to be done in order for all to live in a country where we have justice for all. A-L-L. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. 
If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print.